Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit CEATECHN.com to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco innovations that are changing your world. This week, Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, is back with a green automotive news update. We'll talk about EV sales and the impact the strife is having on the auto industry and EV production. Tom, welcome back to Green Sense. Thanks for having me. Well, there's a lot going on in the auto industry, so <laughs> let's is. get into it. Yeah. Uh, give us an overview of the recent trends in EV sales. Very interesting stuff. And there's a lot of people interpreting what's happening very differently. But EV sales are at an all-time high. That's the good news. In quarter three of 2023, 313,000 EVs were sold in the U.S., accounting for nearly 8% of all vehicles sold. Woo! That's good news. <laughs> so people seem to be more or less embracing EVs. But there's some very strange news attached to that, and that's that EVs are piling up on dealer lots and in the supply chain. And the reason for this is that a very large number of new EV models have been entering the market. And Tesla, Tesla protecting their market share, has been undergoing some serious price cuts of their product. So the price of all four of their products have come down on average 25%. Whoa. In, the last, in the last three quarters. So they've taken a lot of that demand and, and their market share, which was 60%, is still hanging on at 50%, leaving the rest of the 50% for all these other makers that are getting into the EV market. Are there other factors out there contributing to the recent slowdown in EV sales, especially you know since they were so high in the past? Yeah, a lot of stuff going on. Interest rates are very high. That's affecting all car sales. But I think because EVs are more expensive and a little bit more difficult to afford, that's happening there. And and the EV incentives, the federal tax credits, very confusing. But but only 10 vehicles right now qualify for all $7,500 of that tax incentive. So I think that slowed things down an awful lot, too. So in addition to the lack of EV charging infrastructure, are there other challenges or obstacles uh, that are hindering the broader adoption of electric vehicles? Probably. And, and uh, the home home installation is an interesting thing, too. And I think that in, in, in many cases, a manufacturer, and this is true of, of the domestic makers, um, will help you with the installation. Often you can add the price of the device, the charging station to your payments. But once you've added that to your payments and then you see the interest rates of what they're doing, I just think that that's a, it's a, it's a big pile. It's a difficult pill for consumers to swallow. How much of the slowdown of EV sales can be attributed to the economic factors? You mentioned interest rates, but also, you know, the pandemic, the supply change, just inflation. Uh, uh, how much do those impact things? Yeah, we saw some greed out there, too, by manufacturers. And to some extent, manufacturers hurt themselves. We know that the Ford F-150 Lightning, for example, launched with a base model at around $40,000. That quickly went up to $60,000. So the affordability factor there sort of disappeared. Additionally, Ford's the, what should have been the most popular model of the Ford F-150 Lightning, which was the, the well-equipped XLT with the long-range battery, slipped over the $80,000 mark, which means that it didn't qualify at all for the tax credits. And that's the working man's truck. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The 80, 
It's yeah, hard to afford an $80,000 car at 8% interest rate. Um, one thing you don't hear much about, but one, what impact does the slowdown in uh, new car sales have on the secondary EV market? You know, do you do you see now that there's more demand, uh, more supply out there for new cars, and the rising price? How does that impact that secondary market? Uh, according to the people at IC Cars, uh, who who it's, it's an automotive marketplace, and they trend this stuff very accurately, and they write great reports. According to them, um, used EV prices have plummeted, and part of that is the impact of of all these cheap Teslas coming on the market new totally destroying the resale value of existing Teslas out there in the in the uh, in the existing fleet. So EV prices are coming down, used EVs are more affordable and there are used EV tax credits that you can apply. Yeah, let's talk about that. The IRS for the first time is offering a tax credit uh, as of January 1st, 23. If you buy a qualified used electric v- EV or fuel cell, fuel cell vehicle from a licensed dealer, but like everything that the IRS tax code does, they give in one hand, they take away in the other. Give us a, a good explanation of all the details that it takes to get that credit. Yeah, the bad news is there's a cap on that at 25000 The vehicle has to come in under $25,000, which limits the vehicles available to you. The other sort of confusing part of this is, is that um, the used EVs don't need to qualify for the nation of origin rules. So like a new EV uh, to qualify for the full tax credit has to be built in the U.S. with the majority of the battery components being sourced in the U.S. or with U.S. trade-friendly nations. That's not the case. Any used EV applies. But it says it has to be purchased by a from a licensed dealer? You can't purchase from an individual? Unfortunately, no. Yeah, so you have to go through a dealership. So you know which, what the dealers do. necessarily raises the price of the vehicle. <laughs> right, exactly, to my point. Yeah. Yes, they give with one hand, take away with the other. <laughs> so what role do government policies and incentives play in shaping the EV market? Um, At, at this point, I think we're waiting for that impact. The, the, the really big news is how many companies, how many foreign companies have entered into joint ventures with U.S. companies to produce batteries in the U.S. so that vehicles will, in fact comply with the federal tax credit and and, be, and buyers will be able to uh, enjoy that $7,500 tax credit. And as those as those become available, right now, as I mentioned, there's only 10 vehicles that qualify for the full $7,500 tax credit. That number is going to go up a lot within 18 months. Well, in addition to incentives, have there been any other uh, government policy changes that it may impact EV sales? Yeah, you have to check state by state, in some cases, even city by city, but some government agencies will help you with the cost of your EV charging station installation. Additionally, some of them will actually give you some small additional tax credit for the vehicle itself. So it depends where you're at, but you need to look that stuff up because there is money available for that. Have any automakers made any strategic mistakes or misjudgments that could be impacting EV sales, such as product availability or marketing? Marketing. Yeah, General Motors with the uh, with their battery uh, vehicles, for whatever reason, they, they launched some of them, the Cadillac Lyric, the the Hummer, for example, and those vehicles have not really been available. And it seems like they might be having a hard time ramping up their battery technology and getting that produced. Additionally, uh, and, and General Motors is calling this a, a strategic realignment with demand for EVs, they have pushed back by at least a year the production of their big uh, pickup trucks, the Silverado EV and the Sierra EV. 
Yes, I could see uh, everybody's rushed into this market. It's gotten very competitive. I can't even keep track of all the EV manufacturers out there these days. Do, do you have a tally, Tom? Of how many manufacturers there are? Yes. I, I don't know. It, it seems like every manufacturer who sells a car in the U.S. is on the verge of having at least one EV in the marketplace. And then we have the startups as well. How about consumers? Uh, have their perceptions or preferences uh, factored into the uh, current EV market dynamics? And are so. there misconceptions about electric vehicles that need to be addressed? One of the interesting misconceptions, and, and it's a difficult one to break, consumers don't like to get less of something uh, when they move from product to product. And, and right now, range is a real big issue. If you have a gasoline-powered car, your car probably goes 350 to 400 miles on a tank of gas. And, and though you almost never use that range, and the average consumer does not, they don't want to give that up. So when they hear 275 miles, 260 miles of range uh, with a battery-powered vehicle, that feels like they've lost something. And additionally, if you are going on a long trip, it would be nice to have that greater range because you're simply stopping less often to charge. Yeah, that's a good point. I think char charge anxiety and range are still a big issue out there. Um, could you highlight any regions of the country where EV sales are still strong and growing? Oh, yeah. They're, most metropolitan markets, they're still growing. And California, obviously, is one of those great markets. And it's and and we have the green states that we typically call them that have the the higher emission standards that they associate with the uh, the California regulations, but but I don't think that EV demand geographically has softened too much any place. It's just that there's just an awful lot of product out there right now, <laughs> and there's a lot of choice. And the the economy has changed, and things are really expensive. And I think you're starting to feel that bite in everybody's pocket, but. Um, you mentioned something about Tesla. Let's let's unpack that. Tesla sells direct and has variable pricing. Uh, explain in more detail their distribution model, their pricing model, and how that provides a competitive advantage over legacy auto manufacturers. Yeah, to the frustration of legacy automakers, Tesla doesn't go through the dealer franchise system. And and Bill Ford, I'm not sorry, not Bill Ford, but uh, Jim Farley has noted that the system, the the, uh, the franchise system, costs Ford about $2,000 per vehicle in extra cost relative to Tesla, which is a very interesting observation. We think about dealers as generally being a good thing, right? You have repair shops and local stores, and that should work well. But Tesla doesn't deal with that. And one of the things that Tesla can do that traditional automakers cannot do is literally change the price of a vehicle within an hour of deciding to do that. All vehicles are ordered through one single website, and there's just one supply chain, and they don't have dealers that, that that will be frustrated by a price change to inventory that's in the pipeline. So Tesla has this wonderful ability to just cut the price on something they've made too much of, to feel the demand market in some market and raise the price there. It's in, They're incredibly flexible in this regard, and it's very effective. Well, doesn't that make them a market maker? They control the whole market if they control the pricing so so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's a wonderful place for them to be, and they do enough volume that the impact is real. How long will it take for other dealers uh, to to catch up to this model? I don't know that they will. The interesting thing about the way the franchise system works is that a dealer orders the product, and they have product, and they want a guarantee on that price. And it, and the way that uh, traditional automakers usually affect the price is not to raise or lower the actual price on the sticker, but to apply a rebate of some sort. And, and rebates need to exist for 60 to 90 days so that dealers can get that inventory 
and and know that that's the price they paid for it. Otherwise, they would have ordered more or less of that. So it's it's very hard for traditional automakers to work quickly and respond to market demand. But that puts them at a great disadvantage if you've got this whole new business model that cuts costs and allows you to adapt to market conditions. <laughs> it it does, and that's why we talked about Jim Farley from Ford earlier. In Europe, they're adopting what they call the uh, the agency system, where dealerships and it's a lot different over there. But the agency system is simply where the stores that exist, the fran- they're not franchises, they're really just stores, operate basically as the manufacturer tells them to. Well, we're in an ever-changing market, and it's great to have the guru of gears to keep us abreast of all these changes. So thanks for that. So beside Tesla, are there other major domestic or foreign manufacturers uh, out there like Mercedes, BMW, you know, Ford we've talked about? And what are their strategies to dominate the market, and how is, how is that going? One of the interesting comparisons that's been made a couple of times recently is that Mercedes and BMW are having experiencing very different success stories in, in the EV marketplace. And Mercedes, which had focused on very expensive vehicles, their S-Class sedan, for example, or their big crossover, the GLS, as, as their electrified targets. Meanwhile, BMW been been working with more mid-price stuff. And BMW has enjoyed huge sales success with EVs, so good for them. Mercedes has got stuff sticking around on lots that they really don't want there. And per Mercedes, they, they are simply going to start focusing on more expensive, or I'm sorry, more affordable EVs. Interesting. So the market's starting to stratify. It is. Well, let's talk about the current auto strike and its impact on the EV market. Uh, first, give us a, a high-level overview of the situation. Who are the key parties involved? What are the primary issues driving the strike on, on all sides? Yeah, there's an EV component to this strike, but one of the interesting components is that Sean Fain, uh, the head of the UAW and the UAW, decided to strike against all three automakers at the same time. That's an unprecedented situation, and it's a bit of strategy on the part of the UAW that may or may not be working for them. But in addition to the normal things that you would expect the UAW to be striking for, like wages, cost of living adjustments, better pensions, and health care after retirement, is the fact that they want this agreement that they're making right now, they're calling it the master agreement, for this to also include EV battery joint ventures, uh, which is really interesting. And, and General Motors has a couple of those running right now, and other manufacturers have some ready to go. And they do not yet have um, union deals yet. And they've been paying relatively low wages at those factories, something like on $20 or so. So they're ripe for the UAW to come in and want them. But it's very interesting that they would be involved in the exact same deal. I think that the big three, or I should call them the Detroit three, we're hoping those would be separate deals and perhaps a little bit less expensive for them. Well, I, I heard also how they're striking is different. They're doing uh, sort of spot strikes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. It's and and a, how those are disruptive. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And and uh, traditionally, an automaker, I'm sorry, the UAW would pick one automaker to strike against and kind of strike fully against them. They might pick a couple of key plants or shut down the entire company. But this has been very strategic. And the first targets were relatively low volume plants. But re- just the last couple of days, uh, the UAW has taken out Ford's uh, Kentucky plant that makes the F-250, like a huge moneymaker for them, the Sterling Heights plant for Stellantis that makes the uh, Ram pickup truck, and the Arlington, Texas plant, which makes hugely profitable Escalades and Yukons and, and uh, Tahoes. These are, these are very profitable vehicles for them. So they've really stepped up things in the last few days. 
The one thing the unions representing the working workers is asking for is higher wages, of course. And right. this is great and probably needed in good times when the industry is making great profits, which they are. But what happens in bad times? Uh, can they negotiate an adjustable wage scale based on a company's profit and loss to keep them competitive? Or once they raise those wages, they're always going to be high. It seems like there's never long-term planning along those lines and that you could build in some sort of mechanical component that would adjust those wages based on profitability or economic conditions. But we do know that back in 2007 and 2011, that the UAW did give up uh, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that they wanted and did adopt the two-tier wage plan. Uh, and this was at a time when the, when the traditional Detroit three makers are really hurting. And, and the UAW did give up uh, some revenue there and did give up wages for, for new employees, uh, a thing that they're trying to get back now. And I think that one other thing that's happening at the moment is that the UAW knows that that moving forward, UA, uh, EVs require fewer employees and there will be, if not layoffs, just a loss of workers through attrition. So this might be the last time that they have this kind of power to negotiate. Changing times, baby. Yeah. <laughs> well, in terms of sustainability, how does this strike impact the timeline and target set for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and promoting uh, cleaner transportation options? Um, the One of the interesting things that came out of this, and I don't know that anyone knows how to quite read these tea leaves yet, but Ford has suggested that they're going to delay building a huge battery factory. This in part because they expect reduced profitability of EVs moving forward. And the further suggestion there is that going, they're going to commit perhaps a little less effort to EVs in the in the mid, near term and, and midterm. Uh, I don't know how to read that exactly, but that's what that feels like. Well, here's the $64,000 question. Uh, what advice do you have for our listeners uh, uh, who are concerned about the environmental impact of such labor disputes and how they can support sustainable automotive practices during these times of uncertainty? Yeah, apart from being, you know, just driving as little as possible and driving carefully and reducing your own fuel consumption, if you were thinking about doing an EV, bringing an EV into your family garage, January 1st is when things are going to get a lot easier in terms of the tax credits because you won't have to apply and you won't have to wait until you file your, your next taxes to get your money. You will be able to get a rebate directly from the government at the time of purchase, which not only means that you don't have to float that 7500 bucks. That $7,500 is going to be applied to the price, which means that it's going to reduce the tax on that vehicle as well. So that's almost like getting another $800 uh, in incentive. And reduce your interest. Yep. <laughs> right. Uh, what are the potential ripple effects of the strike on the broader automotive industry and the supply chain for electric vehicles? One of the things that we don't want to see as consumers, uh, though the industry would love to see or stockholders would love to see, is, is that manufacturers get good at and dealers get good at managing sales with reduced inventory inventory is really good for consumers because that means that there's stuff there and you have some buying power you have some pricing power as a consumer but if manufacturers and dealers get really good which they sort of did during covid at at at, at selling cars with fewer in the pipeline they're going to be able to keep prices up there won't be discounts there won't be rebates so as, as much as the strike seems like a bad thing for manufacturers, they are, again, learning how to do this and, 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 and how to make money with less stuff. Tom, I'm always amazed at the breadth and depth of your knowledge when it comes to automobiles. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Is there anything you wanted to add in closing? 
I don't think so. If people want to see something super interesting and it's, it's a little pie in the sky, uh, Mazda at the uh, Tokyo Auto Show just introduced a rotary-powered serial hybrid vehicle that's supposed to replace the Miata, and it might run on hydrogen. There's a lot of there's a lot of crossed finger wish list stuff there, but it's really interesting, and and we'll have that posted by the time the show airs. Well, there's Toyota seems to have a lot of wish list and uh, <laughs> cool things and fake news out there, so it's it's nice to look at. Uh, one question I did want to ask: uh-huh. We had Aptiva on the show a long time ago. Are you familiar with that? The solar powered, uh, well, it's got a uh, solar panel on the car, supposed to get up to a thousand miles to a charge. Uh, any any updates on that? Not so much. It, it's we're getting there. I remember when the. Uh... When the Fisker Karma was first introduced, and I think we've talked about this, the solar panels on the roof of that car would provide over the life of the vehicle the equivalent of one tank of gas of energy. So at the time, the solar panel thing really didn't work economically. I know we're better now, but it still seems like we're at a point where economically, powering a car based, based just on the, uh, solely on the, the solar panels on that vehicle, probably not economically feasible. I think the other twist to their car is the the excellent aerodynamics it has. So they combine that with uh, other other physical principles to to help increase those mileage. But, anyways, Tom, always a pleasure having you on the show, and thank you for the update. Oh, Robert, the pleasure was mine. Thank you. That's Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, with our Green Automotive News update. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to Green Sense, and check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM, WBBM, Chicago. Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit ceatechn.com to learn more.